Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money in my job. Not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, how are we going to know when this pain is over? After a day where we opened down, sharply down, and then had a sharp rally up, Dow ultimately gaining 108 points, that's to be advancing 0.33%, NASDAQ inching up 0.01%. I think we got to consider what makes for a sustainable bottom as opposed to a failed bottom that leads to still one more leg down. And that is the real conundrum of this market. Remember, most stocks are in a bear phase here. That's insane. All stocks, just most. For example, if you're in recession-proof stocks and they deliver surprise, surprising upside numbers, those stocks go up and then up and then up each time. As some analysts raises their price target, they go up. I and mean, I can't believe how well Johnson Johnson is behaving. Clorox is a sensational company, a sensational stock. Like J&J is incredibly well-run, and it's hit an all-time high today. PepsiCo got hammered when the company reported. But as it sorted through the earnings period, we now know uh, that the same news that laid the stock low has put it right back up. Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, they refuse to quit. They ain't in no bear market. And then there's the greatest story of all time, Verizon. Uh, Verizon? Well, it's got a decent balance sheet, 3.97% yield, no international exposure, no tariffs or anything else that has anything to do with uh, the government, except for maybe the government allows Sprint to merge with T-Mobile, which will only allow all the wireless companies to raise their prices. As a consumer, I'd much prefer we have real antitrust enforcement. But if you own some Verizon, you can profit from the industry's anti-competitive behavior. Those slowdown stocks are the chosen ones. They can rally on bad days and rallies on good days. Sometimes I think that, that I, I, I think it's, they're kind of like a, that David Blaine's levitating them. In this market, they're as close as it gets to bulletproof, even though their valuations have gotten very, very stretched. It's the David Blaine bull market! Now, why do the recession names keep climbing? Because big money is generally bears, but it doesn't want to leave the table. So when these fund managers finish selling everything that's not working, they buy the recessionistas because these are the only stocks that perform well during a slowdown. Big money knows that when they buy most stocks here, they're fighting the Fed and they're fighting the president. That's just too hard for most of them. They'd rather just go on Clorox. Buy Verizon. Now, what about the other side of the trade? How can you recognize when the bear market and the rest of the stocks is over? Okay, well, let's talk about Apple. This stock is front and center in the tortured market that none dare call bear, except for, well, me. I want you to listen to Apple, which you know I believe you should own, not trade. I want you to listen to about how it felt the grace. Losing 25% of its value in less than two months. $200 billion vanished. Gone. I, mean, I can't find it. Uh, anyone seen it? Anyone seen the 200 billion? No. See, there you go. Okay. Apple came in. What I tell you, Apple came into October with a full head of steam. In fact, it hit an all-time high of $233 on October 3rd. The slide began the next day, not coincidentally, 
the day that Vice President Pence changed our policy toward China from simple trade war to something a lot more bellicose. Pence's speech meant many things to many people, but the most important takeaway for you was that the White House no longer seems to care about how much trade we do with China. Worse, Pence made it clear that there will be consequences for companies that do a lot of manufacturing in the People's Republic when they could be doing it here in America. What American company employs the most people in China? I don't know. I mean, according to that Apple Chinese website, when translated into English, I don't know, Apple created and supported 4.8 million jobs in the PRC, uh, uh, more than double the number of workers the company directly and indirectly supports in the United States. Pence wants China contained. At times, it even sounds like he wants regime change via economic sabotage. And when you view the world through that lens, companies that trade with China are trading with the enemy. So ever since that Pence speech, the stock's been going down. Earlier this month, Apple reported a very strong quarter, one that I liked, but it did not matter. The company announced it would no longer break out the number of phones it sold because that's no longer representative of their business. That line, that one line, hijacked everything good. Since then, we've heard endless reports of supplier cutbacks to Apple that have led pretty much every analyst to suspect that the company's having trouble selling phones. These two issues, China and the perceived weakness in the iPhone, have crushed Apple stock. Every time an analyst cuts its price target or makes a minute cut in numbers, always on the same things I just described, the stock goes down. Every time we're worried about the trade war, the stock goes down. Every time, every time, every time. Then last night, the president gives a rambling, relatively incoherent to be a diplomatic interview with the Wall Street Journal, and he says that perhaps he put a 10% tariff on the hitherto tariff-free iPhones that are made in China. He said the American consumer could handle it. Thank you. Suddenly, the reality of the tariffs at home. If Trump pulls the trigger, you better believe the earnings estimates need to come down. If the president does this, Apple, arguably America's greatest company, the jewel, will be put in an untenable position. If it decides to pull some manufacturing from China, say to please Trump, it runs the risk of the Chinese putting tariffs on its goods. If the Chinese want to play really tough, they may subtly call for a boycott on Apple phones to prevent them from leaving. To me, this is all ridiculous. Apple shouldn't be punished. It should be celebrated. Apple's shareholders have become pinatas as analysts fight to cut numbers and spread fear. I will not play that game. I think Apple stock at 12 times next year's earnings is a bargain. It's a bargain that is beginning to reflect all the bad and none of the good, including great news this very evening from Salesforce, which we will talk to. I bet Apple's buying back stock all the way down and could be a coiled spring on any good news, tariff or otherwise. Here's the bottom line. In this tough, tough market, As long as we don't know if there's a real iPhone slowdown, and until the president takes Apple's iPhone off the trade table, you can't expect an end to the pain. I think it's worth it to hold the stock, though, or even buy some. But at this very moment, I feel very alone. Maybe, just maybe, that's exactly what it feels like to be near a bottom, at least in this one important stock, if not the rest of the tech sector. Let's go to Bill in Florida. Bill! Howdy there, the hardest working man in show business. Thanks I sure for try. Everything you do, Jim. I was three twenty this morning because I heard some other guys were getting up at three thirty. I got to jump on them. What's up? Thanks for everything. So, a question about the Cloud Kings. I'll try to get through some things quickly. We had the IBM Red Hat deal. Right. We had S and P. I mean SAP buying Qualtrics. True. And we've had news of Buffett buying big into Oracle, and then we had Google Cloud. Canning its its fancy CEO. So I'm just wondering, 
if this all rejiggers the competitive climate for the cloud and if Microsoft in particular should be worried? Well, this is a great question because I happen to believe a huge believer in the cloud. I have not backed away. I see no slowdown. I think the data center is good. I think customers are getting digitized. I think Microsoft is doing terrifically. I think Salesforce is doing great. And I got to tell you, I think even Alphabet's going to step up and start doing some right things. So I'm not backing away. Everybody else has, but I'm with you, sir. Let's go to Eli in Florida. Eli. Hey, Jim. Uh, I watch your show when I can and noticed about a month ago you made a call on CVS over Walgreens, WBA. Right. Um, I've been watching them casually for a while before that, and I continued a bit more closely afterward. What I've noticed is that since your call, more or less the opposite has occurred with WBA outperforming CVS. I was hoping to get your take on that and specifically... What's your prediction going forward? Well, remember, CV- you know, CV- <laughs> CVS just had a gigantic move. I mean, you know, I mean, I've been liking the stock. It, it, the stock just moved from 75 to 80 in the last couple days. And I think that's pretty darn good. Walgreens is up from 80 to 83 during the same period. I'll take uh, my view, but it doesn't matter. I like them both. And what I really like are these questions because they are about areas that I think are, make sense. CVS with the end deal. And the cloud stocks, enough is enough with the negative cloud stuff. Enough, enough, enough. All right, most stocks are in bear market mode. I'm getting tired of it. And that's why the pain in stocks like Apple needs to end. But it's still worth owning. Oh, man, tonight, what does the market fear index tell us about the long-term potential of the market? You do not want to miss this. I am tracking down the technical sides that offer an unemotional opinion on the state of the averages. Then I call it like I see it, even when the market watchers don't like it. Then I'm defending my takes. But first, Salesforce reported blow a quarter for the close. CEO Mark Bedioff talks to me exclusively next. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Countering the gloom. Finally, a silver lining in the cloud. The cloud plays, that is. Salesforce just reported another powerful quarter with an even better forecast. Here to break it down is Mark Benioff, the visionary chairman and co-founder and co-CEO of Salesforce. Mr. Benioff, Welcome back to Mad Money. Mark, it's good to see you. It looks like that the fears that a lot of people had that maybe this was going to be the big shortfall, the guidance cut, they didn't come true, did they? Well, Jim, we just had a great quarter here at Salesforce, and I'll tell you, I've got a lot to talk to you about. But before I do, I really have to tell you something really important, which is over the last two weeks, we've had just terrible fires here in San Francisco. And I just want to extend my sincere thanks to all of the firefighters, first responders, and my heart is also with the victims and those families who have lost their homes. Over 14,000 families have lost their homes here in San Francisco, Jim, and 500 businesses as well. 
and more than half of the first responders also lost their homes. At this time of the year, I want everyone to know that they have our sincere gratitude and our hearts remain with all those who have had such a terrible suffering over the last two weeks here at San Francisco. And how do we help? With the fires. How do we help? Jim, we're, Jim, we're giving $2 million today to the victim recovery funds, including the North Valley Community Foundation, and we'd love to encourage others to go ahead and please give to these families who have lost so much. And we will Thank do that. Thank you for letting me say and that. And we will do that, absolutely, of course, because that is Thank you. you. And that's one of the reasons why we come to expect Salesforce to get the finest people in the country, because that's your top priority. The, uh, the numbers here are a bit stunning in that the sense that you're really still talking about beating numbers by hundreds of millions of dollars, even when people did not expect this to be an important quarter because so many people were worried about a worldwide slowdown. I don't see a slowdown around the globe. As a matter of fact, I see an acceleration, particularly in Europe. Jim, we see hitting our big goal, which is $22-23 billion in revenue within two fiscal years by fiscal year 22. And to now tighten that up, here we are, we're giving fiscal year 20 guidance for the first time at $16 billion. We are really excited. Salesforce remains the fastest growing enterprise software company of all time. That's incredible. Now, why did, I mean, for instance, I'm looking at the numbers I compiled for what you could do for f- uh, fiscal fourth quarter uh, 2019 guidance next quarter. Uh, rev- you blew the revenues away in terms of what you gave a forecast. But the, the everyone's focus oh, initially. Great quarter. I mean, Jim, the, these revenue numbers are incredible, wouldn't you say? It's Don't way I, beyond no, our expectations for the quarter. Right. It's awesome. Well, I'm saying that people should be focused on the revenues because that's how I gauge your strength. Well, you can see we had a great quarter. The third quarter was phenomenal. You see we're giving phenomenal guidance for the fourth quarter, and I hope, you know, certainly we're all praying and hoping to improve on that, by the way. And now we can see a strong fiscal year ahead in fiscal year 20 as well. I don't think the company has ever been stronger or been in a better position. And the reason why is every company that we're dealing with is going through a huge digital transformation. And every digital transformation, Jim, begins and ends with the customer. And you just look at one of the largest deals we did this, this quarter is a nine-figure deal with one of the largest banks in the world, and they're just rebuilding how they deal with their customers. That, that's an amazing, amazing story for us, just to see everybody go through this transformation. A nine-figure deal would mean basically that they're redoing everything that is customer-facing? Everything that is customer-facing for one of the top five financial institutions in the world And another one that I can give you the actual name for is doing something just as exciting as Citibank. And you know, Michael has done a fantastic job as CEO of Citi. We've been working on the retail transformation there. And this quarter, they opened the door for us, and now we're doing the wealth transformation as well. We couldn't be more excited about everything that Citibank is doing. Okay, that's Michael Corbett as the CEO. So I think there's people who are that's trying right. to understand the enthusiasm that you know I've had for your stock since was at eight dollars. They're trying to figure out, okay, <laughs> well, why does City need Einstein Analytics? Why do they need a marketing cloud? I mean, it's just a bank. Well, every company is transforming their relationship with their customer, and we're going from a world where if you don't have a digital one-on-one relationship with your customer you're just not going to be that successful. And you can look at some of the huge successes that we've had in the quarter. And I've got some great stories to tell you, Jim, but you know, one of the stories that I love is Uber. Of course, we've all called our Uber. Well, Uber has a tremendous need to have a relationship not only with you, the consumer, but also with the driver, their own internal operations. 
you know, that, that's been an exciting story with us. And as we've been able to improve our relationship with Dara and other executives in the company, we've seen them really transform their relationships with their customers. All right, so I know you guys have a lot of partnerships. Last time I saw you was out there, we were very excited about the Apple partnership. Does, does that produce results or is that a two, three-year transformation? Apple has been a great opportunity for us. We've worked on that for so long. Of course, we all use our Apple products all the time at Salesforce. Uh, now we have a strategic alliance with Apple. We're encouraging our customers to do what we do, which is, you know, take their information on the road. All of our products work natively now on iOS. We have the ability to automate every enterprise around that incredible platform. And uh, we see customers doing that. Uh, I'll tell you a great story during the quarter, Jim, was ServiceMaster. Uh, this is a company that has a lot of brands, but you might know right. some of them like Terminix and others. You know, this is a huge field service operation, but it's also the integration of their call center, their contact center. They're trying to build a 360-degree view of the customer. So, of course, you're working with their technicians in the field. They need to have a strong institutional memory view back in headquarters. That's a digital transformation that is so exciting for so many companies where they protect their homes. Well, I, I got to ask you, there is a sense on Wall Street, very different from when we were out there, frankly, that the whole cons- customer relations management, that also the data center, all the analytics have slowed, that the transformation has slowed. How is that disconnect possible? Well, you can look in all the CRM companies. I mean, we're the largest and most important CRM company in the world. We're number one in CRM by market share and revenue and by, as you can see, again, by revenue growth. But look, it's a big industry and all the players are doing well because every company is going through this customer transformation. Who's not going through a customer transformation? And what, I mean, everywhere I go in the world, this is happening and it's been going on and it's not going to stop anytime soon. And you said it right. It's about sales. It's about service. It's about marketing. It's about commerce. It's about analytics. It's about applications. It's about building community. Or in the case of one of a great customer that we have, DuPont, it's about integration. And you know we have this fantastic acquisition this year, MuleSoft, and, you know, the ability to integrate everything together. This is so important for so many of our customers. No, I know you're working with Ed Breen to make that happen over the uh, three-way split. Uh, One last thing. Uh, Great executive, Ed Breen. He's fabulous. Uh, Any sense that uh, we've had Tim Cook call for regulation? You've been at the vanguard of saying that perhaps Facebook has not been as customer-centric. Is there any way they can redeem themselves? Do they need a big change? Do they need someone at the top or chairman who understands the importance of the customer as opposed to the data? Well, Jim, you know that every company has to hold themselves to a new level of trust. And if your brand is not about trust, you're going you're gonna to have customer issues. And you can see that in that brand. But you can also see their executives are walking back out. Employees are walking out. And that, that happens with a lot of companies in tech right now. We've had a lot of walkouts this quarter, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why is because it's, a, it's kind of a message to the executives. It's time to transform. And let me tell you why that is. Because in technology over the last two decades, the most important thing has been the idea. That is, the best idea wins. That has been what gets you funded. That's how you grow your company. That's been your highest value. The best idea wins. No longer true. The current highest value is trust. And if trust is not your highest value, if the most important thing to you and your company is not trust, 
you need to look again. And that's what's happening with these companies today. Well, I think trust also is uh, good for business as well as being good for the soul. Mark, Absolutely. Thank Mark you, Jim. Benioff, I totally appreciate that. <laughs> chairman and co-CEO of Salesforce with Great a very big you, guy. Happy up. holidays. Same to you, Mark. And let's remember what he said about the firefighters, first responders in the city. They cannot be Thank left to just their own today. devices. Thank you, Mark Benioff. Yeah. What a quarter. We have money's back after the break. tell you a little something about the mechanics of being a commentator. You know what's really not worth it? Taking a stand. You're not rewarded for taking a stand, not in this market, perhaps not in any market. If I had any sense of self-preservation whatsoever, I'd never do it. Fortunately for you, I just can't help myself. But the incentives are all in the other direction. You're rewarded for equivocating, for saying on the one hand, on the other. You can make your life a lot easier by either saying nothing or declaring yourself an eternal optimist or an eternal pessimist, which is equally unhelpful. And you know what people really hate? When you change your mind, when you reassess the situation based on new facts. When you're wishy-washy, not willing to offer a declarative view, routinely just presenting both sides and nothing more, you make your life trouble-free. When you take a stand, you know you're going to get pummeled, as I've been pummeled for stressing the perils of the current situation rather than spending more time on the potential upside. For example, right now, ahead of the G20 and J-PAL speech, I know we're at a very important juncture, and I want people to realize the dangers if, not when, but if our leaders do the wrong thing. I think it's my duty to point out those dangers. Why? Because I'm hoping at this time the Fed will finally take me seriously. Eleven years ago, I came out here and I screamed, They know nothing! They know nothing! And the Federal Open Market Committee literally laughed at me. They turned out to be sadly mistaken. If the Fed is a learning animal, then maybe they'll be more open to criticism this time around. Maybe they'll listen. But I'm not saying the Fed will necessarily do the wrong thing. I'm certainly not saying you need to sell everything. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm doing for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionLordsPlus.com club, although we are carrying a higher cash position because of the risks that I perceive. Let me put it to you like this. I'm reading people on Twitter claiming that I told uh, them that you'll regret not selling things at this level if the Fed screws up and goes full bore against inflation. I, I don't know. That's a very reasonable statement, if you ask me. If the Fed drops the ball, hey, we're in real trouble. However, that's a mighty big if. I'm not saying you need to sell everything because the Fed will make the wrong call. I don't know what Jay Powell's going to do. I think it's possible to look at the data, see it like me, see how weak the economy has become away from e-commerce and employment, and probably err on the side of caution, giving us one more rate hike and then deciding to wait and see before he tightens again. That's prudent. I don't want rash. I want prudence. It's even possible that he won't tighten next month. The dovish Fed could stop the rolling bear in its tracks. At the same time, if the president were simply to say he wants China to have a little more time before raising the tariffs from 10 to 25 percent, perhaps it's a sign of good faith, perhaps it's a a sign that our companies have a little more time to move, then stocks again will roar. But if Trump doesn't do that, then I expect more downside. Look, we are in a very binary moment here. These are not controversial statements. In fact, the idea that more rate hikes and higher tariffs are bad for business is the most conventional of conventional wisdom. This stuff is straightforward as it gets, unless you believe the economy is so hot that we can handle many more rate hikes or that tariffs somehow promote commerce and higher earnings for many industries, as the president claimed in that completely bizarre out-of-body interview with The Wall Street Journal yesterday. 
But let's go back to the original premise, which is how easy it would be for me to say nothing or just adopt a permanent position, an eternal cheerleader or an eternal bear. If I came out of here every day and said it was the seventh inning of the bull market, would anyone really mind? That's the kind of cautious nonsense that you that uh, you could have said every day for the last 30 years. And it's always lapped up, strangely, when hedge funds say it by journalists. Or if I came out and said, stop worrying about your stocks and your index funds. It's all good. Everything's good. It's all it's all good, good, good. I, I, maybe I could give it some extra respons- respectability by saying, and don't forget, I subscribe to the Warren Buffett School of Stock Picking. Don't do it. Again, that's regarded as sage-like, unassailable. Problem is that none of that is actually advice that is all hel- at all helpful for regular investors. You have to try to explain the risks and the rewards. You have to try to help people avoid gigantic downside, even if the market could come back over a five-year period, as was the case from 2007 to 2012. Right now, I think that stocks still have a lot of risk and not a lot of reward, unless Jay Powell and President Trump do the prudent things, and they might not do them. And that's something a lot of people don't want to hear. I'm especially exasperated when I try to warn people that you shouldn't be too excited about the upcoming G20 meeting. And then I get excoriated for being incredibly bearish. Listen, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I don't think the president's all that eager to make a deal with China. Something I've been saying for ages. Even if you think that's good uh, foreign policy, it's definitely bad for the stock market. Let me give you the real crux of the matter. The fact is, I've been far more bullish than bearish in my career. And for good reason. Since I got started in this business, the Dow had gone has gone from 1,000 to 25,000. Good call if I have to say it myself. And I'm going to say it because I want to explain why you should bother even listening to me. If the, in the times that I got really bearish, 1987, 2000, 2007, it was right to be bearish. I messed up big time in 1998. You can read about that in Confessions of Street Addict. I don't know. Three out of four ain't bad. As my late mom always said, if you don't stick up for yourself, no one else will. So let me be crystal clear. I am not a super bear right now. Not after how oversold we got to be and after how tremendous the Salesforce quarter was. But I do think there could be a lot that could go wrong that's out of the hands of our great companies. Stocks often won't go up on good news and then get crushed on bad news or even middling information, as was the case with the retailers last week, although we you know, said good things about them last night, they rallied today, and Apple for the last two months. That's wrong. I try to call it as I see it, even though it can be really uncomfortable for me. I'm doing my best here. You get my honest opinion. Nobody put a gun to your head and said, you need to listen to me. But here's the bottom line. If you want wishy-washy opinions or permanent bullishness, believe me, you got a lot of different options to choose from. But as far as I'm concerned, that kind of analysis is not very useful. I'd rather try to get it right and help people, which is why I come out here every, every night, including tonight, and tell you the truth as I see it, even when it causes me to get pilloried on social media and even when I get it wrong, either through a lack of understanding or simple bad luck. Let's go to Philip in Florida. Philip. Hey, Mr. Kramer. How's it going? It's going real well. How about you, Philip? Oh, really good. My question is about the company Intel. They have a a new design on their new products, and apparently it's not going to be as good as the competition this time around. Um, What's your opinion? I think that Lisa Sue at Advanced Micro has done a remarkable job. Advanced micro stock has gone all the way down from 34 to as uh, recently as 19. I think that's an overreaction, and you should buy AMD. I think AMD has taken leaps and bounds uh, above Intel and a lot of different things, and they're really rivaling uh, my old friend NVIDIA. So I would rather buy Lisa Sue's stock, AMD. Let's go to Ralph in New Jersey. Please, Ralph. Hello, Jim. Ralph. Today I'm looking at Tilray, T-L-R-Y, the Canadian pharmaceutical and cannabis company. 
Jim, with cannabis all the rage today, I can't find any logic in this stock. The IPO was January the 9th, July the 19th at $17. It's traded up to $300, closed today at $114 with a market cap of $10.5 billion, Jim. Based on the last quarterly revenues of $10 million, there are no earnings yet. It gives it a multiple of 250 times annualized right. revenues. Jim, following you for a long time, I understand investing for value, right. income, growth, even speculation. I even remember Amazon and okay. the stories when they're generating revenues, generating revenues, no earnings. All right. Jim, so many players in this space. Could Tilray be the next Amazon? No, Til- Tilray is not the one you want to be. You want to be in, in Canopy because they got more than $4 billion in cash that was given them by Constellation Brands. CGC, I'm interviewing Bruce Linton at the Deal Economy on Thursday. I feel that every single other marijuana cannabis stock should be sold. The only one worth owning, if you do want to own one, is Canopy or derivatively through Constellation Brands, which gave them the money. Look, sometimes you just have to put your neck out there, okay? I'm just going to come out and say it. I think there's a lot going wrong right now. And if less the Fed and the president do the right thing, we're going to get to lower levels there, okay? Much more man money ahead. What could the VIX signal about the overall market? I'm tackling the technicals to find out, and it's real surprising. Then, what Constellation Brands, Canada Goose, and Five Below can tell us about long and short-term potential in this market. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I mean, every time you look, they make you plant more olive trees. And then you got to kick it back to the state. And he's talking about Brooklyn. (laughs) A tree tree that's in Brooklyn. Hey, an olive tree grows in Brooklyn. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. We've had moments in this bear market where suddenly everything looked like it. Well, maybe it was going to be okay. On October 16th, the averages rallied like crazy, Dow gaining nearly 550 points, and there was a widespread sense that at last the pain might be over. But I thought that might be a little too optimistic. So we checked in with our resident volatility expert, Mark Sebastian. He is a brilliant technician. He's the founder of OptionPit.com, as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com, and it's fun to read. And he told us, uh-uh, no way. Ah, uh-uh, expect more downside. Well, was that a good call? So after yesterday's bounce, I figured, why not go back to him? He's the source here because the SIBO volatility index, also known as the VIX for short, or the fear gauge, because it does such a good job of measuring the overall level of panic in the stock market, is something that this man, let's just say he knows it better than anyone I've ever seen. And what does he see? What does Sebastian see? Let's start by taking a look at this pair of charts. The S&P 500 and the volatility index over the past four months. This is so telling. It's incredible. Remember, historically, the VIX and the S&P are supposed to be trading in opposite directions. The VIX works by measuring the implied volatility of S&P 500 options over the next month. In plain English, institutional investors like to buy puts and calls as a kind of insurance against wild swings in the market. So when they expect a lot of volatility, the price of that insurance goes up. When they expect less volatility, the price of insurance goes down. That's what makes the VIX such a good tell of what's about to occur. Now, on October 11th, when the meltdown had really gotten going, OK, Sebastian points out that the volatility index peaked at just under 29 intraday. Then on October 24th, even as the stock market continued to decline, 
The VIX made a lower high, peaking at just under 28 intraday. That's huge for Sebastian. When the VIX and the S&P start moving in the same direction, it's often a sign that a big move is ready to change directions, even if the change is only temporary. So uh, when the S&P makes a lower low, but the VIX fails to make a higher high, Sebastian tends to take a, a sign that a bottom may be at hand. Sure enough, that same day, the S&P made its lowest low yet. Okay, there it goes. The VIX once again failed to make the higher high. Uh, and suddenly, the market caught fire with a massive rebound. For the next week, it seemed like the situation had stabilized. The S&P 500 ran from 2640 to 2800 in a straight line, and it was breathtaking. Meanwhile, the volatility index was behaving itself, tanking all the way down to 16, as it should. Okay, that's exactly what it should happen as the level of fear receded. Of course, it turns out the fear was justified because the averages peaked again on November 7th and the stocks went right back down in a hideous route that lasted until yesterday's bounce. And who knows? Maybe the bounce is uh, temporary. Maybe not. Let's take a look at a second pair of charts. It's the same pictures of the S&P and the volatility index with a different emphasis. Because Sebastian has noted something interesting about the latest leg of the bear market. Based on the action in the VIX, there has been very little panic. As the S&P plummeted once again, the VIX pretty much traded sideways. In short, as stocks were steadily going lower, one of the worst breakdowns in years, the fear index barely reacted. To Sebastian, that suggests that the decline was not driven by panic. If anything, it was kind of expected. Just days ago, the S&P reached its lowest level since early February. Okay, here we go. Do you know that the VIX was barely over 20? Remember, it, it shot up to 28 when we fell off a cliff in October. What gives here? Does this mean that the volatility index is broken? Has the fear gauge stopped working? Sebastian thinks it's simpler than that. Markets can indeed fall without the VIX rallying, albeit only for short periods of time. In fact, we've seen this before. So what happened the last time the S&P 500 got slammed and the VIX fell along with it rather than rallying like you'd expect? Okay, let's zoom out. This is really instructive. This next pair chart shows the S&P and the volatility index going back to the beginning of the year. Remember how the averages fell apart starting in January? Okay, you're beginning with the tariffs and the hideous meltdown in February that was off, actually trading off the VIX. You'll notice there was a nice bounce in late February. Okay, we've got a nice bounce in late, this is the SPX, late February and early March, but then we quickly went back into sell-off mode giving up all those gains. But look at the VIX. Isn't this interesting? Spikes above 35 during the first phase of the climb. Then during the second breakdown in late March, it only ticks up to the low 20s. To Sebastian, this looks like a lot like what we've just seen in the past couple of months. During the first leg of the decline in October, now switched directions in October, the VIX went crazy, okay? But during the second leg down in November, the VIX just shrugged, didn't do anything. Why does this matter? Because when the VIX and the S&P start behaving like this, Sebastian says it's almost always a sign that the stock market is actually trying to find a bottom. Wouldn't that be something? Here's how it works. In October, the meltdown took us by surprise and everyone freaked out. So traders bought protection in the form of put options on the S&P 500, and that's why the VIX surged. However, in the hideous decline last week, we really didn't see a ton of put buying. If anything, traders, well, have been selling their protection, both in the form of puts on the S&P, and in the form of call options in the volatility index itself. Why does this make sense? Because as horrible as last week was, we've finally become jaded. I'm not saying we're jaded enough necessarily, but if you're going to get a sustainable bottom, even a short-term bounce, the bulls need to capitulate. And that's what he's saying happened last week. People need to give up. He's saying that's been happening for a month. One sign of capitulation, when the stock market gets crushed and traders aren't that surprised. The sell-off in October blindsided a lot of people. The sell-off in the last couple of weeks blindsided nobody. Even investors who thought we were ready to rally knew that there was another down leg possibility. 
Sebastian has one last pair of charts that's very instructive, too. This is the VIX on top of the SIBO VIX volatility index. If you can remember any calculus, think of the VIVIX as taking the derivative of the VIX. It shows you the expected volatility of the volatility index. And Sebastian says the action here is super bullish. Super bullish. Why? Because as the volatility index tried to creep higher, okay, here you're watching the top of the over the last couple of weeks, the VIVIX has been in free fall. In other words, the money managers who are betting on the VIX itself, they believe volatility is going down, not up. And if the fear index is ready to go lower, Sebastian says that an incredible sign, that's an incredible sign. And it says, he's saying, listen, we could have a bottom at hand in the market. In fact, he thinks it's possible we may have already bottomed, just like we bottomed in April when the market sold off and the VIX did next to nothing. Bottom line, for what it's worth, these charts, as interpreted by Mark Sebastian, suggest that it's time to start doing some buying. He thinks you might not get another chance as good as this one for the rest of 2018. I don't know if he's right, but don't you find it hardening when you consider how right that Sebastian's been in the past? Maybe the VIX is signaling that the Fed might be in one and wait mode, one rate hike, and then wait and see. Or that the president may actually have something positive up his sleeve when he has dinner with the Chinese president this weekend. Stranger things have happened. And if they do, the bear might finally, at last, hibernate. Yeah, money's back into the And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dance over the lightning round. Let's start with Howard in Colorado. Howard. Hey, big booyah to you, Jim. Right back at you, Chief. What's going on? Wanted to find out. I have a position in MongoDB, MDB. Those guys are smart guys. We had them all. out next week. I, I like that. I like them very much. I think it's a great stock here, and I think that people are underestimating the power of what they're doing for enterprise software, which is on fire. Let's go to Debbie in Arizona. Debbie. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I'm talking about Well Tower Inc., the real estate investment trust that deals in um, diverse healthcare. Okay, look, uh, that does senior senior. Uh, you, when you do senior housing. We don't recommend anything else other than Ventas. Deb Kafaro's been counted down so many times, it is crazy. 5% yield. Ventas is the way we play. I need to go to Anthony in California. Anthony. Booyah, Jim. Thank Booyah. you for taking my call. Uh, and welcome. thank you for all the things you do for the small guy out there. And go Action Alerts Plus. Thank you. Hey, yes. Uh, I got a ticket for you. ADI. Analog had a good quarter. ADI had a good quarter. A lot of people felt that there's some sort of slowdown in their business. It was not bad, and I think the stock's a buy. Let's go to Tim. That's a, a semiconductor coming. Let's go to Tim and Marilyn. Tim. Mr. Kramer, love your show. First Thank time, you. long time. Okay. A couple of years ago, you recommended Iridium Communications. Is it still a buy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. That one really worked out. It took a while, though. Don't want to give myself an ounce of credit. That one took a long time. But the answer is yes, because it's a unique niche business. Joseph in New York. Joseph. Hey, how are you doing, Jim? I'm doing good, good, Joseph. How about you? Long-time watcher. Thank you. First-time caller. Yes. Never seen on your show. How about Huntington Bancorp? The regionals are not working for me. The regionals are not working. There are two that I like a lot. I like City, which is trading a tangible book. Uh, Mike Corbett doing a great job. 
And I like J.P. Morgan, where Jamie Dimon is doing a great job. Nobody seems to care right now. They will one day. Let's go to Bill in Florida. Bill! Booyah, Jim! Is it now a good time to buy Ren Gold Mines, or do you have a favorite other gold stock? I like gold bullion. Um, I like Rangold, but only because I think that people should have some exposure to gold. I am not a big gold bull right now. I regard it as insurance. Dave in the Illini. Dave. Dr. Kramer. Dave. How are you doing? Not bad. You see the way Marley's getting along with Everest there in the Twitter pictures? No, I missed that. I'm going to have to check that out. Thank you. Jim, my stock today is Beantown Boston Scientific, BSX. Oh, man, what can I say? I think that BSX is going to come out, and I think that BSX is going to be in the AFC Championship. I like Boston Scientific. I need to go to Kieran in Indiana. Kieran. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Good. I'm from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. And how much fun did we have when we were at Kelly? Fabulous kids. What's up? we had a ton of fun. Absolutely. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on LKQ. I screwed up on this one. I really liked it. Uh, Collision replacement. I misjudged how poor the auto cycle was. My bad. It's not working. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve. E-A-G. Is this Jimbo? Okay. All right. Remember, five and six. We're on the hunt. We're in the hunt. We are very much in the hunt. This was still the year that we won the Super Bowl. People forget that. It's driving me crazy. What's the stock? I'm looking at PPL, Jim. Oh, Pennsylvania Power and Light. How much have I paid those guys over time? It's a fine utility. Nothing wrong, nothing right. I think it does the job. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Long-term versus short-term. It's the oldest dilemma in the book. Right now, there are a ton of terrific long-term situations that could still be horrific in the short-term. Let me give you some examples. I want to start with Five Below. Here's an outstanding regional and national retailer, meaning it's a concept that flew regionally in the Philadelphia area and now can go national without a problem. The company has about 725 stores, mainly in the Northeast, but there's room for 2,500 nationwide, which is a terrific trajectory that will give you excellent long-term growth. The stores have a treasure hunt feel, and the merchandise is, as they say, hand-picked, trend right, and wow. They're putting up new locations like crazy. So what's the problem? Well, Five Below reports on December 5th. Let's say the president uh, decides to let the tariffs go from 10 to 25%, the Chinese tariffs. Five Below sources a lot of merchandise from China. Would they have to go to 550 and below? So while we have this stock in the bullpen for the ActionLearnsPlus.com club, how can we not wait to see what happens with the tariffs and with the verbiage on the conference call? Next up, Canada Goose. It just reported one of the biggest beats of the year, earning 46 cents. Wall Street was only looking for 26 cents. Management raised the revenue growth forecast from 20% to 30%. That's phenomenal. The company's direct-to-consumer business has soared and has much higher margins than traditional retail, 75% against 56% in brick and mortar. So what's the worry? This morning, shareholders, not the company, but shareholders, dumped 10 million shares at $65.15. Spot secondary, they call it. The stock was poorly placed, and it traded well below that price almost immediately, close to $62.82. Will it matter longer term? I think not. This is a great concept. 
great execution. But don't you think the people will be worried that insiders are bailing? In this market, I bet that will be the narrative, not how there's a nice discount for a terrific piece of merchandise. Finally, there's Constellation Brands, the company behind Modelo, Corona, Victoria, and Pacifico, all fabulous sellers, by the way, at Bar San Miguel, my small plate restaurant in Brooklyn. It also has a great deal of premium wines. I just bought a whole valise of Prisoner this weekend. And if you're concerned marijuana is going to disrupt the alcohol business, Constellation's backing Canopy Growth, the biggest and best Canadian cannabis company. I'm looking forward to speaking to the CEO of Canopy, Bruce Linton, at the Deal Economy Conference on Thursday. But one thing is clear. They may be the only winner coming out of the Canadian legalization because they're the only player with the capital to exploit it, and you need a ton of money to do so. So what's my reluctance with Constellation? Now the stock is down more than 40 points from its high, I think the market has turned on beer specifically and alcohol in general. Why? Because of disappointing sales at Anheuser-Busch and Biff. The crazy thing, that's a competitor that I think is losing share to Constellation. But in a bear market, who the heck cares? People sell on good news, the last quarter was terrific, and on bad news, other companies in the beer business had bad quarters. These are the dilemmas I find every day. I am confident that longer term, five below will grow nationally and successfully. Canada Goose is the best apparel company out there at a discount, and the Constellation is the best way to play beer and bud. But if I tell you to buy them right here and they keep going down, I'll have stuck my neck out for nothing, at least right now. And if they go back up a year from now, who will remember or even care that I was right? So if you have the patience, if you're willing to accept some short-term pain in expectation of longer-term gain, I like five below, Canada Goose, and Constellation Brands here. If you can't handle the potential pain, though, those stocks may not be for you. Stick with it. I've been waiting for Apple stock to start down and then go higher. That pattern has not occurred until today. I think it's a positive. I've been waiting for Salesforce to report and give a good forecast. It reported a great number and gave a great forecast. These two should make a difference as the worst stocks are stocks in tech, particularly anything related to the cloud. I think that the cloud is very strong and that the bears are wrong. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Man Body. I'm Jim Cramer. I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.